Okidoki. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach you the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello again, dear friends, and welcome back to another episode of Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit with me, Paddy Bird. So what are we going to be talking about in this week's show? Well, as you probably know by now, I am utterly fascinated by our craft, but I'm also fascinated by the psychological states needed for creative editing. I love examining how we create that mental environment for editing. What should we be thinking about when we're cutting? And what are the ways to train our minds for best results? To me, the least important thing to talk about when discussing editing is the software. Now, don't get me wrong, I do love the software. I think Premiere and Media Composer and all the other programs are absolutely superb tools. But I think the amount of emphasis on the technical side of editing compared to the artistic side is completely skewed. You know, it's completely distorted. Where I personally get excited and where I think we should be moving the conversation towards is asking things like, how do we move our audiences? What has them on the edge of their seat and glued to the screen? For me, it's not what timeline we're using and how that timeline works, but how we use that timeline. And so on this week's show, I want to talk through a little creativity hack, really, a little state of mind technique that I adopted right at the start of my editing career that I stole from what was then going to be my chosen career. And of course, I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had around this subject as well. Also stay tuned for the winner of last week's competition in honor of Eddie Hamilton's guest appearance, I asked you which action sequence from all of Eddie's many films did you think was the best and why? Now, Eddie himself picked out the winner, so I'll be announcing that at the end of the show. Okay, let's get started. Back in the mid-1990s, I was immersing myself in all things film and television. You know, I knew I wanted to be part of this world, but I hadn't discovered my love of editing yet. At that point, I had a different direction. I had a different goal. I wanted to be an actor. I started out doing extra work on movies and television dramas, an extras agency would pay £50 a day and give you breakfast and lunch to sit around on set and wait for the few times they'd want to shoot a crowd scene or a, or a group of people. 
I was 19 years old, um, and I remember watching the directors and cinematographers on set talk to each other and set up the shots and, and go through and, and capture what they wanted. I'd also watched the first ADs get on their loudspeakers and shout at us to stand here or stand there or look over here or gasp or shout. And I really wanted to be one of those actors who was plucked from the crowd um, and given a line or two and then, you know, their career exploded. I think that's what we all dreamed of at that point. One of my pastimes was to actually spot now famous actors as background characters in, in earlier films. And I'd go for countless auditions all around London, sitting around for hours um, in corridors and, and waiting for my chance to go in and, and say a line or two to a very bored assistant casting director. I mean, I even managed to get a line in a few of the UK's longest-running soap operas and TV dramas, but my big break still eluded me. It was then that I read about method acting, how all the greats had adapted this style of acting to create many of the classic films that I'd loved. All those actors who did method acting, their performances, you know, they were so special, so believable. They stood out so much that I started to dig deeper and, and research it. And what I found out was really interesting. Method acting was developed by the Russian acting coach Konstantin Stanislavsky in the first half of the 20th century. He called it the art of experiencing. You know, you experience the role as opposed to the art of representation, which is what acting was up till that point. You represented what was going on in the script with your interpretation of the human behavior in it. Now, one of the toughest things to get right um, in acting is body language. We as human beings are constantly broadcasting hundreds of physical clues about our internal mental state through our body language. Coincidentally, this is one of the primary things that a good observational documentary editor looks for when they're cutting. These micro-expressions, you know, we've talked about this in a, in a previous episode, these micro-expressions tell us a hell of a lot about what this person feels as opposed to what they're saying. The theory around method acting is that if you are consciously trying to control all of these body language behaviors and reactions, not only does it get exhausting, but something will always slip through and give the audience the real state of where you're at emotionally, which is probably not what is in the script. So it's this eternal quest for character authenticity. Now, instead of trying to control what largely can't be controlled, the method acting theorists, you know, they decided to go straight to the root of all our behavior, the mind. If the actors could try and inhabit their character, they would feel the real emotions that the character would. And consequently, every single one of the hundreds of body language signals they were broadcasting would look genuine and the suspension of disbelief would be enforced. Now, when I read about this theory, I thought, wow, 
This is my chance. This is it. I was going to become the next Robert De Niro and turn myself into an amazing method actor. After some further research uh, and asking around, I found out that Jack Waltzer, one of the legends of method acting coaching, was coming to London. Now, Jack had taught at the Actors Studio in New York and trained actors like Dustin Hoffman and Sigourney Weaver. So I signed up straight away and, and started studying with him. I remember going through loads of physical and mental exercises which were placing me outside of me. They were teaching me to react emotionally from a different perspective. Um, and in the middle of the exercise, which was you know, also done in front of the whole class, Jack would shout out questions or statements to try and get me to answer from this new character's state of mind. I really enjoyed the whole process. And armed with all of these new abilities, I went out to conquer the world and win my first Oscar. But there was just one small problem. <laughs> I was a terrible actor. I was shockingly bad. I didn't sound believable. I could barely remember any lines. And I was so nervous that I over-exaggerated every single line. It turns out there was a very good reason, you know, I wasn't getting all of the big parts. Now, this was a crushing realisation. If I wanted to be part of this world of film and television, it would have to be from behind the camera and not in front of it. But luckily, within a few months, I had discovered editing. Like most editors, I was self-taught. I'd sat down in front of an avid and spent hundreds of hours in self-directed investigation and experimentation, trying to figure out this art form, you know, largely by myself, with the occasional small bit of advice from, from a pro. I'd watch countless films and documentaries over and over again to study the way they were structured and to memorise the cutting patterns and stylizations. You know, in those thousands of hours of solitude by myself in, in the edit suite, I constantly asked myself why things were working on my timelines and, more importantly, why things weren't. I discovered loads of things that I was good at, but I also discovered loads of things that I was bad at and intimidated by. And one of the things I really struggled with in those early days is, coincidentally enough, one of the most asked questions I get nowadays when I'm talking to young editors. How do I sit and watch the same thing over and over again? How can I keep an interest in what I'm constructing after watching it dozens and dozens of times without feeling burnt out by the footage? I mean, it was a problem. This repetition of watching the same footage over and over again was distracting. I couldn't focus after a certain amount of viewings and I'd become too emotionally attached to what I'd cut and not have the dispassionate nature needed to gradually build something. Around this time, the Will Smith movie Men in Black came out. I think it was like 96 or 97, something like that. And I remember thinking I could really use one of those mind-blanking gizmos to use on myself before every single playback and viewing of what I was cutting. 
I needed to pretend like I hadn't seen this sequence before. And that, funnily enough, is usually the question I get asked today. How do you pretend that you haven't watched your film before so you can be an objective observer? Now, this is really interesting because if we dig into it a little deeper, um, we see there's a few things going on here at once. Firstly, as editors, we are the first audience. So we need to watch something that we've constructed and then stop at the end and feel the same emotions that an audience member would feel. You know, if it doesn't have the same effect on us, then how is it going to have the same effect on a couple of million people watching this? But secondly, and more problematically, we need to distance ourselves enough from those emotions to know what exactly is wrong with the sequence and how we fix it. And that was the difficult part for me. I remember thinking, we've kind of got two competing states of mind going on at the same time. We've got a kind of emotionally open or receptive state of mind when we're watching, but we also need to come from an analytical point of view as well in order to fix the ever-present errors that are in the sequence. So I started looking at the patterns in which I edited. There are very distinctive stages in anything that we're cutting. You know, first we'll sift through all the raw footage and make our selections of certain elements depending on, you know, what, what genre we're working in. Then we'll build a first attempt at a sequence commonly known as a rough cut and then go through a long process of watching, analysing and correcting repeatedly. And this is where the problems started to arise for me. I realized that I had to switch my mental state from the emotionally open and receptive mindset of being a viewer over to the analytical state of judging this sequence and making all the corrections once I'd finished watching. And to be honest with you, that felt difficult. Back and forth, back and forth from emotional to analytical or, as Stanislavski would have said it, experiencing to analytical, experiencing to analytical. I had to experience the scene as never before, and that really was the key. I would have to re-experience watching this sequence as a new audience member, just like an actor would, even though they know the lines off by heart and they've gone through it hundreds of times. So I saw some real parallels and connections. And then I remembered Stanislavski's magic if principle. The ability to imagine yourself in a fictional set of circumstances and to envision the consequences of finding yourself facing that particular situation. The circumstances are obviously the script and the direction from the director. But throughout the rehearsal process, the actor can develop imaginary stimuli like sensory details of the circumstances to create and reinforce the desired mindset and therefore a flawless and completely believable performance. Now, these sensory details were called inner objects of attention and they help the actor with the ability to focus their attention 
on the fictional world of the drama and away from the presence of the camera crew and all the people watching. Now, I'd read about this when studying method acting and tried to do it, but for whatever reason, I was just terrible when doing it in front of a camera. I couldn't switch it on when there was a crowd of people. But those few years later, I decided to try it out and adopt it to editing and see if I could use it when viewing sequences. So it wasn't so much about pretending that I hadn't seen the sequence before. It was more about inhabiting the character of an audience member who hadn't seen the scene. And this seemed to be way more interesting. I remember my reasoning around it. And that was that the imagination is an extremely powerful tool. The imagination was responsible for all the footage I had on my timeline. It was responsible for an actor's performance, a script that was written, the, you know, the position that the cameras put in, and pretty much every artistic aspect of filmmaking. So why not here as well? Now, the difference between acting and viewing a sequence in an edit suite, you know, it's, it's obviously massive. I didn't need to learn any lines or deliver some kind of physical action, you know, things like that. I could actually reduce what was asked of me right down to simply watching a sequence and being carried away with whatever was in it. But I first needed to find some kind of stimuli, some kind of object of attention, some kind of sensory or imaginary trigger that would allow me to inhabit a character who hadn't seen the scene I was cutting. And this will sound a bit strange, but I actually settled on my mother. My mother knows absolutely nothing about filmmaking. I've tried to explain to her for many years what I do, but unfortunately she just doesn't seem to understand. So she was like the perfect audience member. My thought process was that I obviously knew her very well and that I could transport myself to her front room where she watched television very easily. And so I started to experiment with a couple of different scenarios. Sometimes I'd imagine that I was sitting in her favorite chair in front of her TV. I would deliberately try and smell the distinct smell of that room, the feel of the carpet beneath my feet, the warmth of her cat sitting next to me on the chair, which he always does when my mother is watching television. All of these were my imagination working overtime to create sensory triggers for me. And other times, I'd imagine that I was sitting next to her, watching her, watching one of my scenes. And this was really interesting. I started to notice throughout the early days of my career that if I'd cut a scene alone and not with a client, and I got it to a kind of fairly polished state and was really happy with it, I'd often watch it with that client and then I'd see it very differently. I watched my mind and I saw that over and over again, I was way more judgmental about what I was showing the client, even though for the past several hours, I was certain it was excellent and completely finished. Something happens when we watch our work with a client for the first time. We become incredibly critical in a way that we just weren't when we were by ourselves. I remember thinking, hold on a minute, why do I now think that that montage 
in the middle of the scene needs some work or the pacing towards the end isn't right. That was a really interesting moment for me, realising that we change our thought process and perception when we vicariously watch for the first time through the eyes of someone else. Now, both of these I had to do repeatedly and very quickly. And so I started using a mental countdown, which I'd heard about in certain acting circles. I'd count down three, two, one, and then I'd project myself into one or the other of these mental places. And then I'd press play and watch. The first time I did it, it was a bit like the first time I did an exercise in one of Jack Walter's classes. I felt like an absolute idiot. (laughs) The second time was the same, but I stuck with it. And after a while, it kind of worked. Over time, I set up and gradually trained my mind to create a psychological trigger to transport myself. After a while, I also added a slow blink of my eyes when the countdown got to zero. And that was my cue to be in character. I think I stole it from a film that I'd watched at some point. I'm not quite sure where that came from. So that was my sequence. I would build and correct any errors in my scene, focus myself, do a deep inhalation and exhalation of breath, count down from five. As soon as I got to zero, I'd blink my eyes and I'd press play. You know, it sounds crazy, but it worked. To this day, I still use it over two decades later and however many thousands of times I've done it. Like anything we do repeatedly and over such a long time, it became an automatic habit. And so now I never even think about my mother. My mind just clears and I'm in that state of experiencing the scene as soon as I blink my eyes. What I also realised is that this type of projection into someone else when viewing something I'd seen dozens of times before, you know, this kind of visualisation that I was going through was also great for preparing my emotional state and experiencing the emotional state of so many scenes. Another aspect of method acting training is to relive or remember certain emotions you've experienced in your life and bring them up at key moments and blend them into the similar emotions required for the scene. And again, I thought, why the hell couldn't I do that with viewing and building emotional scenes in editing? This could not only get me into the right emotional state to build the scene, but it could also help me in certain essential selective choices, like which music to choose. I remember cutting a feature-length documentary about NASA's space shuttle program. It was the history of how and why they built it, the missions they went on and the tragedies that the program had. It really was an editor's dream, hundreds of hours of raw NASA archive footage going back decades and interviews with many of the astronauts who piloted the spacecraft. There was a beautiful scene somewhere in the middle of the film, I remember, that was about how the astronauts felt when they looked out of the window for the first time and saw the Earth below. 
It was obviously one of the most amazing moments of their lives and an opportunity that only a very few human beings would have in their lifetime. I listened to the, to the raw interview sync from the astronauts and I thought it was breathtaking. I knew that the music and especially the pacing had to be absolutely stunning as well. A real philosophical life moment that summed up what it was like to be an inhabitant of this tiny little planet spinning through space. I remember sitting quietly in the edit suite and, and thought back to times that I had felt feelings of wonder and amazement in my life when I had connected with those emotions and could feel them rushing through me. I started to audition music and within about, I'd say about half an hour, I had a few perfect tracks to try out. That emotional state had connected me to how I wanted the audience to feel when they watched this beautiful scene. And as I slowly built the sequence and played it again and again, I adjusted the timeline over and over to what was in my mind and the feelings that I had. There are moments in life that take our breath away, both positive and negative. When I was cutting, I would recall moments in my life I'd looked at a woman and felt love rushing through me. And I'd also bring up the feelings of when that relationship ended and the sad and lonely feelings that flooded into me. If I was cutting a tense scene, I would connect with moments in my life when I had felt anxious. You know, these are all human experiences and we all have them. And my theory was that they can all be used to make my sequences better. I could connect with how I wanted the audience to feel and it acted like a target to aim for when cutting a particularly emotional scene and I did it across so many types of scenes you know if it was supposed to be a funny scene I put myself in a comedic state of mind if it was a cool and stylized type of sequence I'd transport myself into that mindset and ask myself whether the sequence that I had cut matched that emotion in my head Sometimes I'd even change my body language or the way I was sitting in my chair to match the tone of the scene. In all honesty, I went through several years of trial and error and tried out many of these experiments and they always seemed to help me get closer and quicker to the tone of what I was trying to build in any one sequence. Any way that I could get my audience to feel the powerful emotions in any film that I was cutting, I would love to try it out. One of the greatest joys in editing is knowing that what we construct on our timelines can really move our audience 
and that we can take them on a beautifully designed roller coaster of emotions throughout our film. If we've achieved that, we've done our job. I hope you've enjoyed this week's creative discussion. Uh, I think it's a really interesting subject. And if you have any thoughts on it or experiences you'd like to share, please do send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. So it's time for this week's Q&A. And this week's question comes from Mark in Switzerland. He wants to ask about the close relationship between the editor and the director. He says, I guess we all know about Francis Ford Coppola and Walter Murch, Steven Spielberg and Michael Kahn and Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker. Why do directors trust long-term editing collaborators? Thanks for sending that in, Mark. I think that's a really great question. Okay, so if we're talking about these lifelong or career-long collaborations, I think there's several factors at play here as to why directors stick with the same editors. Firstly, I think there's a deep connection around the style of the director and the almost telepathic ability of the editor to know exactly what the director wants. Directors sit and plan out pretty much every single aspect of the film and visualize it over a very long period of time. They use their imagination to play every single aspect of the film over and over in their mind from the very early stages of working on the script to planning the look of the film to designing the shooting and the mood of the film and then the performance of the actors and the framing of the shots. I mean, it's, it's a really long list and an incredibly difficult job. If an editor just gets their style 100% and knows exactly the kind of thing that they're trying to achieve, then why would directors want to change editors from one film to the next and risk problems on the next film? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, as the saying goes. Good editors dial into and connect with the director's style flair, cutting patterns, performance nuances, and a hundred other tiny things that show the director that they totally understand their style in the most granular way. I remember listening to the great Thelma Schoonmaker talking about what Martin Scorsese likes in his cutting patterns when piecing together action. She intrinsically knew what was in his head and how to match that with what she had put together in any scene. Secondly, as people work together and they work together well, it's like any kind of relationship, whether it be family, romantic or, or friendship based, they begin to have a deep level of communication over time. I mean, it's almost like they have their own language together and the need to explain a huge amount becomes less and less. You know, this is a dream for any director as all of the stresses of film are usually at their height during editing. The exhaustion of the shoot is still there and there's always the pressure of the looming deadline to finish the film. So it's a really stressful time. If at this stage of the film, a director is embedded in a relationship which they are familiar with and they trust them as a fellow artist, 
Um, and there doesn't need to be any kind of combat or arguments or ego. And it's just pure creativity and productivity. Then that makes the director's job a whole lot easier at, at this time. And finally, any good editor, after dialing themselves into what the director wants creatively and stylistically, and also expending a lot of effort on building a relationship and forming a productive communication between the two, they're also going to go above and beyond for their director. They will push themselves harder to get the very best out of every single shot for the film. They'll adapt themselves as well to every single bump on the way, of which, of course, there's always many on a film. And they'll also be inherently positive in this working relationship. Cultivating a long-term working relationship from an editor's point of view is about having a positive and a kind of magnetic can-do personality. This sense of both going on this difficult but beautiful journey together. Trust is built through these many factors, from an alignment of creativity and style to communication to a positive working relationship. And if all these factors align, and it's a great experience every time, then it has all the makings of a fruitful long-term collaboration. Thanks for sending that in, Mark. I hope I've answered your question. Please do keep your questions coming for our Q&A. You can email me directly at podcast at insidetheedit.com and I'll get your question on a future show. So, who won last week's competition? We asked you, what is your favourite edited action sequence from any of Eddie Hamilton's movies and why? Now, we had some great answers from all over the world, but just one person was going to walk away with that annual Creative Cloud licence, courtesy of the good people over at Adobe. Eddie read through the answers and chose this one from Jameson. Jameson says, There are so many masterfully edited action sequences under Eddie's belt, it's hard to pick just one. That being said, the opera sequence in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation has to be my absolute favourite. I could go on for pages explaining in detail why every single second of this sequence is perfection. To me, this set piece showcases the perfect culmination of established geography, music, sound effects, tough character decisions and a limited time frame. The setup for the scene is simple. The syndicate wants to kill the Chancellor of Austria. Ethan Hunt doesn't want them to succeed. The focus of the audience is clearly Tom Cruise, but the focus of the sequence is the Chancellor. The majority of the characters in this sequence are introduced within a few seconds of each other, and they are all introduced in relation to the Chancellor as he enters the Opera House. Not one shot is wasted. We follow each character as they take their positions backstage, and each of these locations is shown relative to where the Chancellor sits. The geography is clear and established, allowing more freedom to jump around as the sequence progresses. The crowd falls silent along with Joe Kramer's official soundtrack, and the opera begins with a boom. 
The opera music plays an essential role in the pacing of this sequence. I love that when Elsa and the other assassin assemble their weapons, it's cut in perfect sync with the orchestra. The climax of the scene is established with an insert shot of a music sheet. A red marker circles the note at which the Chancellor will be assassinated. This gives Ethan a clear deadline to accomplish his task. It also allows the action to intensify as the music does, creating a runaway train-like effect that keeps the audience on the edge of their seats. Eventually, Ethan has to make a difficult decision when he sees that two assassins have the Chancellor in their sights. The music builds as we cut between all of his possible options. The circled note is shown again and Ethan is out of time. He makes his decision and shoots the Chancellor in the shoulder, getting him out of the way of the other two bullets. The scene climaxes and the audience can breathe for about eight seconds. I saw this movie in theatres when I was 12. The scene stood out to me so much that I went back to watch the movie again three days later. I paid thorough attention to the editing that second viewing, and I have for every movie I've seen since then. Eddie Hamilton single-handedly inspired me to become a film editor. I will continue to be inspired by his work until one day I can construct my own opera sequence. Thank you, Eddie. What an awesome answer, Jameson. We will definitely remember your name and one day you may be a guest on this show dispensing your own wisdom. Thank you so much for sending in this fantastic answer and an annual license of Adobe's Creative Cloud is on its way to you. That about wraps it up for another show. Don't forget, if you want to learn the actual art of editing and not the same old software theories, come and join us at Inside the Edit. We've helped thousands of filmmakers around the world, as well as many of the industry's biggest broadcasters and production companies to learn this beautiful art form. We turn you into a powerful, creative editor. As always, a massive shout out to our great friends over at Universal Production Music, whose tracks we always use on not only every single episode of this podcast, but every single one of our 100 plus tutorials at Inside the Edit. I really did have a load of fun picking out uh, the tracks this week. You know, the ones that would elicit the exact emotions that I wanted everyone to feel. It took quite a while this week, but auditioning tracks from Universal's massive library is never a chore. I absolutely love it. If you like any of the tracks I've used this week, be sure to check out the resources page to this episode at podcast.insidetheedit.com and you can find direct links to every single track. Please don't forget to share this podcast with friends and colleagues. And if you have 30 seconds to spare, a review on Apple Podcasts would be really, really appreciated. I want to turn this into the best editing podcast and free resource for our community. And with your help, I can make this happen. Take care, my dear friends, and I'll see you soon on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Stay cool, stay safe. 
and stay kind.